0: When we uh, take the refuges in the morning, chant the refuges every morning, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, as nice as it is for us to sing together or chant together like that, it's uh, even more useful as we're doing this community chant to have some intuitive sense of your deepest Aspiration, some sense of whatever burden we feel being a human being, whatever oppressive qualities we notice in the heart and mind and body, the burdensome of life, burdens- burdensomeness of life, however we experience, to some, to intuit some full, unshakable release of that. And I'm not sure if it was Sharon Salzberg, but I remember, it might have been Sharon, a teacher who asked that question, why not aspire for our deepest aspiration? Like, what's the point in holding back or what do we have to lose to not to be attached but to be interested, to be attuned to what we're beginning to intuit as possible, to be intimate, to be engaged, to be awake, to be aware and not burdened by what we're opening to, what's being seen, what's being felt, to be right in the middle, responsive kind compassionate appreciative but not burdened by being a human being not burdened by the complexity of relationships or the messiness of injustice so we have to you know we have a lot of creative energy but usually it goes to like imagining a better future for ourselves or a nicer home or a nicer partner or something like that so to use some of that creative energy and to imagine what might be possible for this heart what might be available not later but right here being an imperfect human being and so tonight I want to continue um, in the general theme that Steve spoke on last night right view and look a little bit more closely at how how the mind gets trapped in ways of misperceiving and misunderstanding and how those patterns of misperceiving and misunderstanding, there's a certain coherence or intelligence in a sense that keeps the mind deluded, keeps the mind confused, not connecting, not understanding the way things are. The Buddha said, If it were not possible to free the heart from entanglements, I would not teach you to do so. Just because it is possible to free the heart, there arise the teachings of the Dharma of liberation, offered open-handedly for the welfare of all beings. Right? And as we've been talking about on the retreat, the Buddha teaches, the Buddha's teachings emphasize this you know, all the different skillful means that support the stabilization of awareness, the settling, clarifying, balancing of the mind or the awareness so that there can be a continuity of awareness with the changing objects of the mind and body. This stability of awareness isn't interrupted or thrown off by whatever might arise in the experience of the mind and body. And then we aim that stability of awareness, right? We open to the underlying nature, and in particular, the underlying nature of the mind, the knowing mind. And what's so interesting about these patterns, these habits of misunderstanding, misperceiving is how arrogantly certain we can be, how strongly we can rationalize or justify our perceptions. You know, it takes a lot of wisdom to begin to understand that we're not seeing clearly or that we may not understand what's happening here. I'm sure you've noticed this in certain difficult situations in your life. What a powerful step it can be when we begin to understand that I guess I don't know what's going on here or I guess I don't know how to be skillful here. Because then with that humility, we are more willing to listen and to observe with awareness what's coming and going, and get a sense of our own confusion, like what is the mind doing with however it feels right now? Like the kind of conclusions that our mind draws just because it feels yucky or it feels really exciting. Buddha would say in situations like this, you know, when the mind is caught in one fixed view or another, that we don't know the causes for our own happiness and we don't know the causes for the happiness of others, which means, you know, we're kind of a danger to ourselves and others. We're operating in the world as if we do know what are the causes for my happiness, what's good for everybody else, but in fact, we don't know the causes for our own happiness or the causes for other people's happiness. And, of course, when we look at the history of human beings doing stupid things and causing a lot of unhappiness, of course, we always, those human beings, that means us, right, we always thought we knew what we were doing. We always thought we were doing what was good for us and good for others. I like this definition I might have mentioned this uh, in the earlier talk this definition of delusion which is thinking that we know right because when we think that we know no matter how we conceive it the Buddha said something similar to this no matter how we might conceive or construct meaning about the way it is the actual way that it is is always other than that because the way that it is what we open to with this balanced and continuous awareness isn't a conception of how it is or what's happening or who I am, but it's what we call a direct, immediate knowing of the nature of things. And we can think of examples around seeking comfort, getting away from you know, discomfort, like an irritating sound or pain in the body. And just like just to reflect, like maybe the you were in a funk or in some kind of reactive pattern earlier in the day. And just to notice that arrogant certainty you might have had in moments like, if I get rid of this I'll be fine. If I can fix this if I can just get out of the sun, if I can just get out into the sun, you know, if I can just have lunch, as soon as this food is digested, I'll be fine. You know, it's just like. But it's interesting how, even as compelling as those thoughts are, those perceptions, and then the thoughts, and then the view, right? Because it gets ossified. It starts with just that first perception where we feel that we've eaten too much at lunch. And the perception is I'll be fine in a few hours when this food's digested, you know. And then we think about it, you know, we keep proliferating and thinking here is a karmic act in the sense that it lays down, it creates karmic fruit to think that way. And then to begin to see that, to see that way or to understand that way. And we fail to miss, or we fail to see how we've been doing this forever. Always thinking that we know, but never seeing the inconsistencies, or never seeing that what we thought, like the promise that's never kept, what we thought was going to take care of us, doesn't really take care of us for long at least. We're right back in the same pattern, you know, the if only pattern, trying to solve the problem. The self has. So we're using the mind conditioned by greed, conditioned by aversion, conditioned by confusion, distraction, delusion. We're using the mind to get something to solve the problem the self has. Like if I could have this or if if I could get rid of this then I'll be good, I'll be fine. So that's normally what we're doing with the mind and with our Buddhist awareness practice, we're using the mind, we're using this continuity of mindful awareness to understand what's skillful and unskillful. And we're using wisdom, right? The mind awareness conditioned by wisdom that understands at least to some degree, at least is open to the possibility that this, what's being known, Is nature and not self and as Steve mentioned last night it's conditioned by right intention you know the intention of renunciation or letting go the intention of kindness and harmlessness right so this mind conditioned by wisdom and right intention wanting to see the causes for suffering the causes for stress and the causes for the release of that stress. So that's different than believing, if this, then I'll be happy. It really comes, the second way of using the mind, this path of awakening way of using the mind, is really based on this humility of knowing that we don't know the causes of suffering and the causes for release, sufficiently at least. And that's why we're cultivating, that's why we're stabilizing the awareness That's why we're using the Buddhist teachings to condition the awareness with wisdom, right view, and right intention, so that we can see what hasn't yet been seen, understand what isn't yet understood, precisely because we're not deluded. We don't think we already know, because, of course, when we think we know, we're not there's no incentive to open, to see clearly. Andy Olensky uh was writing about these habits of misperceiving. He wrote maybe you don't know, Andy Olensky is uh actually way back when he was the executive director here at IMS, even though he's a Buddhist scholar, and then uh Later, they, uh, some of the leaders here, Sharon and Joseph and Andy Olensky and a few others, started the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies just over the hill. a wonderful place to study and practice. And Andy was the scholar in residence there for many years. <clears throat> and um, so he wrote, uh, in terms of these habits of misperceiving, fundamental to the Buddhist notion of ignorance or delusion. It is not that we are inherently flawed in our nature. It is just that we make some serious errors on many levels as we attempt to make sense of the world around us. As we come to recognize through meditation practice some of the ways we misconstrue things about our experience, we, co- we become more able to correct uh, for these errors and gain greater clarity. And then a little later he says or writes, This is the Buddhist view of mental disease and mental health. Delusion is a mental illness that causes all sorts of suffering. Mental health can be restored by correcting the flaws and how the mind operates. Fortunately, Buddhas arise to make things bright. He's quoting a sutta there, a passage, and illustrate in detail how this recovery for our natural health can be accomplished. And so I'll be reading from this particular discord, the Vipalasa Sutta, which is, uh, Andy at least, translates it as the distortions of the mind. Another translator translates it it as the perversions of the mind, the way that the mind misconstrues or misperceives. And uh, nowadays in Western psychology, you know, there's a lot about this confirmation bias or implicit bias. It's really important for us to understand, it's a little humiliating, but it's really important for us to understand that we can't trust our perceptual processes. That when I look out into the room or when I look at a magazine or watch some media or walk around town or look at my face in the mirror or pretty much do anything, the reality that I experience, is that it's a constructed reality. I mentioned this in one of the small groups, I think today, maybe yesterday. You know, thinking about myself born in 1958, conditioned by the television programs in the early 60s, My Three Sons, My Father Knows Best, Leave it to Beaver, My Mother the Car, I don't know. <laughs> some of you might remember that. <laughs> but the kind of worldview and the values, I mean, they, obviously they weren't all bad, but definitely limited, you know, the cultural imprint through my parents into this mind, through the other influences, the school, the media, TV, things like that. It's a It's really useful to reflect in that way that we are very much the continuation of our conditioning and so then it isn't quite as humiliating to realize that we can't trust how we perceive things but knowing that knowing that our perceptual patterns or ways of perceiving knowing that they're limited is a step towards clarity right because we know then when we're experiencing the present moment that if we're not careful the experience is going to be dominated by that perceptual process, by that constructing of meaning instead of a more immediate and direct experiencing of th- seeing things in and of themselves and knowing that it's being known, right? The understanding that the mind is aware this is being known and that creates a lot more the opportunity for a lot more wisdom or a lot less delusion i was reading wikipedia um, about confirmation bias which is this tendency to search for interpret and we call information in a way that confirms one's pre-existing beliefs or a hypothesis while giving disproportionately less consideration to alternative possibilities so this is just one of the ways you know and in that uh, wider article in Wikipedia they quoted this person that said smart people believe weird things because they're skilled at defending beliefs they arrived at, arrived at for non-smart reasons. <laughs> right? And this is really interesting to see in political discourse, of course. You know, if you think like I do, then we see things correctly. <laughs> and then, but it's really interesting when we read media or observe media that are people who have different points of view, like really intelligent, People who have different points of view. And to see that, yes, in fact, there are really smart people who are able to come up with reasons to believe really stupid things. <laughs> right? We see that all the time. There's sort of intelligence, there's a lot of intelligence in delusion. So the, the thing about the awakening process and the real brilliance of how the Buddha instructs us is just understanding how important it is to begin the practice and to continue the practice and to end the practice with this emphasis on understanding or view. This is a path of wisdom. And the real heart, remember, the real heart of this is not thinking that we know, as much as it is knowing that we don't know. Because that keeps us learning. That keeps us not getting fixed, getting attached, even to what looks like, you know, what the Buddha said. But the attachment, the mind getting dependent on the idea, the conception that everything's impermanent, that everything's nature and not self, being dependent on that idea is delusion. Seeing it directly in experience is seeing things as they are and liberating. Before I read the sutta, I'll just share this um, funny story. It's, it's something that's made the rounds. And I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing that this poem I'm going to read came later as this story made the round, somebody wrote a poem about it called The Cookie Thief. Maybe you've heard this. This poem is written by Valerie Cox. A woman was waiting at the airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book at the, in the airport shops, brought a bag of cookies, and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book but happened to see that a man sitting beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag in between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. So she munched the cookies and watched the clock as the gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking, If I wasn't so nice, I would blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered what would he do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. (laughs) He offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, ooh, brother. (laughs) This guy has some nerve and he's also rude. Why didn't he even show any gratitude? (laughs) She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed to the gate, refusing to look back at the thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank into her seat. Then she sought her book, which was almost complete. As she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise, there was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. (laughs) If mine are here, she moaned in despair, the others were his, and he tried to share. (laughs) Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. (laughs) So these perceptions, and once there's a perception, then the tendency, the very strong tendency of the mind is to think about the perception, whatever our perception is, you know, this is a great, I'm having a great retreat, I'm having a lousy retreat, or I had a good day today, I have, and then when we think about it, then it gets, like I said, more ossified, more established in the mind, and then it becomes a fixed view, this is a good day, I am having a good day, and we ignore the evidence to the contrary, or this is a bad day, and then we ignore the evidence to the contrary. Because the mind, the way the sort of self-deluded mind, the mind sort of convinced in this idea of me, it really is dependent on being certain more than anything else. So it will defend its perceptions and its thought patterns and it will end up imprisoning itself in fixed views. And of course, we live here almost all the time. There's another fun thing you can check out on the website, uh, on the internet rather. It's called, it's a little video that I think was done in 1990 called The Lunch Date. Maybe some of you have seen it. You can see it on YouTube, The Lunch Date. And it's just a woman, I think Grand Central Station, and she's just having a bad day, missed her train, lost her wallet, she goes to a little cafe and orders a salad and puts it down on a table and, you know, in one of the booths in this like diner in Grand Central Station and goes back to get her silverware and she returns to her seat. And there's a guy, looks like he might be homeless, sitting there eating her salad. And she can't believe it, you know. She grabs the plate and he grabs it and pulls it back you can probably sense where this is going she sits there across from him in the booth kind of fuming at him eventually she gets up her nerve takes her fork and starts to eat off the plate too he eats and they kind of kind of go at this and then you know as the plate empties of salad the guy gets up and gets two cups of tea or coffee and offers her a cup of coffee and she grudgingly takes it anyway Eventually, she leaves to go catch the next train and realizes she left her packages there. She comes back and when she sees where her packages are, she sees the plate of salad completely uneaten, right? Because she went back to the wrong booth. It wasn't her salad. Just another example of these misperceptions. I'm sure if we had time, we could hear so many examples from a crowd of 95 people or whatever we are of times especially like with our partners this happens a lot where we're so sure we're right like they did something wrong you know only to realize that it wasn't their fault or they didn't do what we thought they did and especially if they're not there and we have a couple hours to proliferate it's so difficult to be wrong, because it's really gotten gotten ossified as a view in the mind. This is reality. It started with an innocent misperception. You know, we see something that's out of place, and we we draw a conclusion, but then as we think about that, because thinking is a karmic act, there's consequences for what's rolling around in our mind as thought. And then if we act on it, I'm gonna write a letter, I won't send it yet, but I want to get my thoughts clear on this matter. (laughs) Or whatever we might do, I'm going to talk to my friend about how to handle this. But the more we act on the misperception, the more real it appears in the mind. To the point where we're willing to discount real evidence to the contrary because we're more committed to being right, to maintaining what we think is right, than to seeing things as they are. So the Buddha, you know, 2,500, 2,600 years ago, he talks about this. So we palasa, that word Andy translates as distortion. And here's what he says about that word. He, in this, uh, his comments to his translation, he kind of breaks down all the pieces of the word. But then he says, we have the image of the mind taking something up turning it around and throwing it back down. A perversion or distortion of reality by the perceptual and cognitive apparatus of the brain, right? The mind just flips it around. It, you know how that is when our minds can be, especially if we have too much caffeine, it can be really quick, it, it like leaps on the first thing. And then once it has that initial perception, the next moments of perceiving are affected by the initial assumption, the initial conclusion the thinking mind, the conceiving mind has constructed based on the initial perception. So our perceiving process isn't neutral. It's always affected not just by the past, but it's also affected by the initial perception. Hoping that you know our first guess was right, but you know our first guess arises because of the past, not necessarily because of what's true in this moment. It's like I, uh, back in the '80s and early '90s, I worked a lot in the schools. Um, in later years, then in the '90s, as a behavior specialist in inner-city schools. A lot of kids from poverty and just difficult life circumstances. And you'd see with some of these children, um, it's called in the sort of academic circle, seeing hostile intentions. You know, they just assume that authority figures, adults in school, have it in for them, right? And so it doesn't, it's like you might approach in one way, but that's not necessarily how they're going to perceive it how you approach them. And it's like you have to become very skilled at not triggering that very strong perceptual habit to see threats. I mean, it's the same with people who have been experienced trauma. It's very easy to trigger that trauma. It's not like it's just that will happen unless uh, the conditions are just right and we need to start taking, at least for our own perceptual habits, but just more generally understanding how our minds construct meaning, We it makes us move through life with a lot more tenderness, a lot more forgiveness, a lot more patience, and a lot more wisdom about how we show up. I mean, when is the last time I'm, I'm just starting... To see this in so many arenas like where we notice like in my case notice the fact of showing up as a male or a white male in a situation like that has real implications for what I'm perceiving and what other people are perceiving or according to my age you know I may not feel 59 you know so I might but when I'm with young adults, it's like, they definitely see me <laughs> as an older person. You know, but I may, so just to sort of understand how the perceptual mechanisms work in our minds really can help. So here's the discourse, the Pilasa Sutta, distortions of mind. And this, again, is translated by Andy Olensky. These four, O practitioners, are distortions of perception, distortions of thought, distortions of view. I'll talk a little bit more about this first piece here, but the first thing is perception. Perception, of course, triggers thinking. Thinking establishes view, right? The more we think, the more established the view. And the sutta goes on, sensing no change in the changing, Sensing pleasure in the suffering, assuming self where there is no self, sensing the unlovely as lovely, gone astray with wrong views, beings misperceive with distorted minds. Bound in the bondage of Mara, those people are far from safety. They are beings that go on flowing, going again from death to birth. Right, these cycles of suffering. But when, in the world of darkness, Buddhas arise to make things bright, they present this profound teaching, which, being suffer, which brings suffering to an end. When those with wisdom have heard this, they recuperate their right mind. Like Steve mentioned last night, that one of the proximate causes for wisdom is hearing the teachings, having some pointing out instructions from somebody with wisdom, somebody who understands the Buddhist teachings. And then the sutta ends, they see change in what is changing, suffering where there is suffering, non-self in what is without self, they see the unlovely as such. By By this acceptance of right view, they overcome all suffering. So let's reflect a little bit about these four distortions that uh, were naturally, just in the course of our practice being on retreat and of course before, we learn a lot about these distortions, not just in the seclusion of retreat practice, but also these kinds of uh, wisdom reflections can be very rich in daily life as well by just taking up any one of these four distortions, seeing permanent and what is impermanent. So just like to move through life with that reflection, what is the mind taking to be permanent? It's like whatever health we have right now, that we're living with right now, I bet much of the day, I'd certainly this is the case for me, It was a rare event today when my mind clearly perceived that the vitality and health that I'm feeling is a fragile thing, is an uncertain thing, an impermanent thing. And when that did arise in my mind, maybe a few times today, it was almost always when there was uh, like maybe I felt a little numbness in my knee after the sit this morning. And then that reminded me, you know, like this is a fragile thing here, this body. I better listen to my knee. I better take care of my knee. But most of the other time, I was, there was some delusion that the health, the vitality, the relative ease of my body was something I can bank on, something that's dependable. But is it dependable? Some of you might have noticed that one of our fellow retreatants had to have his appendix removed and uh, I doing fine. We got an email from one of our retreat support people, Um, but it's like these things happen, these uncertain things. And the second one, you know, that we could reflect on, sensing pleasure. The delusion the distortion of sensing pleasure in what is actually unsatisfying dissatisfying not really going to satisfy us right so it's like when you get your oatmeal with the raisins and the prunes and the, you know whatever else you like in it for me lots of butter <laughs> So it's just like you like it, right? And uh, there's a sense, especially before we start, you know, when we're carrying it and all the possibility lies before us, <laughs> some sense that this is going to be a meaningful experience, like it's going to be satisfying in some meaningful, substantial way. But we've had these seemingly satisfying breakfasts now i have you know we're pretty privileged in that regard that we get you know most of us have had a lot of good food in our lives but clearly we're still looking for breakfast to provide that lasting satisfaction which it doesn't and we can notice it even when you go to bed tonight you know a day lived with a lot of integrity Practicing, doing the best we can, feeling that sweet feeling of exhaustion, of having had a good day, done the best we could, thinking that, you know, sleep is going to do it for us until it's over. You know, and even in the midst of sleep, the more we expect the sleep to be satisfying, it can be a real setup. Because even if it's just an ordinary sleep, Not one of those really good sleeps. I go, oh, I remember being on IMS. I had such a good sleep. Beautiful dreams, you know. I want one of those. You know, maybe this tonight. So sensing pleasure in what is actually unsatisfying. This is something that we can reflect on all day. Even... Like I noticed um, in my practice over the years, when it was, uh, you know, just finding the mind in relatively calm and peaceful states, and uh, I just noticed this strong expectation that, oh, I've been wanting this for a long time, that as if the samadhi, the quietness, the calm, the peacefulness is going to take care of everything. It's going to satisfy me in a meaningful lasting way. But it doesn't. Right? If I asked people to raise their hand, if you had a good sit, you know, many people, maybe everybody would raise their hand. If, it, if I asked if that really good sit gave you immunity, from having a disturbed, fragmented, discombobulated, fried mind, we'd all raise our hand again. Like, no, it didn't. But it's interesting how convinced we are when we're in the proximity of the mind settling into a peaceful place. There's a real sense like we're overvaluing that experience, thinking that, it's going to take care of this sense of me. It's going to really give me something that will fix me, take care of me. The third distortion, assuming self where there is no self, right? And this is, goes really to the heart of this awareness practice that we do. Because when we're training the mind in this balanced way to recognize this is being known, this is being known, this is being known, we're really on purpose when we're seeing objects of experience as just something being known. We're supporting this understanding, training in this perception that it's the activity of nature, this conditional unfolding of the activity of the body, sensation sight, sounds, smells, and tastes, and the conditional unfolding of the activity of mind, you know, the movement of thought and emotion, mental thoughts, I mean, mental images, thoughts, and emotions. These things are conditional activities, right? They move like nature. They are nature. And when we realize it's just this being known, just this being known, we're in a way disrupting the beginning of that perception, this is happening to me. I'm feeling this pain in my my neck. I'm feeling the cool breeze on my arm. I'm hearing the sound of the voice. And therefore I should have an opinion about it right? I should, that perception, that experience then should give me some meaning, should inform my basic project, right? And what's the diluted project that we're mostly involved in? We're trying to get something to solve the problem the self has, or get rid of something to solve the problem the self has. So then when we are perceiving in a normal way even in a set you know every time we know something it's known from that perspective okay this is happening to me and what does this say about me getting comfortable in my sit, or what does this how does this inform me getting to that state of real calm and peace or what is this, how does this help me have something to say in my interview with one of the teachers, right? So it's some self-project, thinking that experience is always about a self-project, something we want to get, have, something we want to get rid of. And so this is seeing self in what is actually nature. So to see that it's, see nature in what is actually nature we remember it's just something being known it's just not something being known and even if because of the because the perception is going to happen anyway that's also just something being known that mental activity we call perception even though it is conditioned by the 60s tv shows or whatever else it's okay that that our minds are imperfect in that way, in the way that they've been conditioned. Because it isn't about having some perfect perceptual mechanism, it's about understanding that it's the activity of nature. It's just something being known. So these implicit biases, these sort of embedded prejudices that we have around sexism and racism and classism and you know, other, ways that our mind is implicitly implicitly conditioned around difference that will happen it happens on the retreat it happens in daily life but we can be aware of that as something being known which gives us some immunity from acting it out because there's an awareness of the perception oh that perception that tendency to conclude this is happening is that perceptual pattern being known and we get familiar with it the more the awareness is stabilized the more continuous the awareness we see very clearly how we construct drama many people you've heard in the small groups sharing blow by blow how their mind how they observed that part of the mind that constructs meaning through that perceptual process and thinking and getting fixed, uh, having a fixed view, blow by blow, how that happened to them, you know, where they created a big storm and then hopefully saw the deconstruction of the storm. It's just that being known, no longer feeding it. And then it just unwinds Due to not being fed, not being reinforced. How many times even in one day or even in one sit can we observe the dramas being constructed and then as wisdom gets stabilized, continuity of awareness gets stabilized, the construction, the relatively fixed view, not being fed by thoughts, thoughts not being fed by misperception, the whole thing begins to fall apart, deconstruct. I mean, one of the funniest things to do at the end of retreats is in the dining hall or, you know, on the front lawn as you're checking in with each other, or some of you maybe rode here with other people on retreat, and just to tell each other stories about delusions that the mind visited for a minute, for an hour, half a day things that seem so real so important that you know wasn't so important after all or had, had nothing to do with reality later you know we even call we have a term for this yogi mind here's a or oh, in the last one I should mention, sensing the unlovely as lovely. Here, unlovely doesn't mean ugly. It just means it's not beautiful. Like our body or another person's body, the perception and our thoughts, and then maybe even our fixed view might be they have a lovely body. Or I have a lovely body. Or that's a lovely tree. Or that's a lovely sunset. Or this is a lovely retreat center. Or it could be just the opposite too. You know, that's an ugly retreat. This is an ugly retreat center. Or that's a boring sunset. But the <laughs> it's neither lovely nor not lovely, right? So when we see, like the last one, you know, they see the unlovely as such. Things are just what they are. Suchness, in a way, it's, beautiful and the in a liberating sense to see that things are just what they are neither lovely nor ugly they're just what they are and it's really another you know using food as another example let's say our wonderful cooks make just the meal you love tomorrow for lunch and you can try have it in front of you and just try like uh to practice with it we're the smell and the visual experience. Um, you can sort of see the perceptual process, turn it into something lovely, and then you can you know, just sort of soften your gaze, establish the continuity of mindfulness, and you'll see, no, it's just what it is. It's just the smells being smelled and the sights being seen and the thoughts, being taught, and all of that being known, being known, being known. And it's really interesting. I've done this on retreat here. Just how the mind can flip back from being the one, the person who sees this as lovely with the expectation of being satisfied and then with wise view. It's just this being known, neither lovely nor not lovely. But it's not like we're taking away the pleasantness of the smell or the pleasantness of the sight. This is before we're even eating. It's just that the mind isn't confused by pleasantness. It isn't making pleasantness more than what it is. Seeing a pleasant sight is just that seeing the pleasant sight being known. Smelling the pleasant smell is just that, experience being known. So being intimate, it's actually about being intimate. It feels, in a sense, like there's some distance. That's why sometimes people use the word detached. But it's because the mind isn't entangled with it. The actual experience is being more real, more intimate, right there in a way that we've never been with a meal probably, or rarely have been with food. So this understanding that things are neither lovely nor not lovely, they're just what they are, something being known, is a liberating insight that arises out of intimacy, not aversion to the world. Or aversion to food, or aversion to beautiful things in the world. It's really understanding what beauty is. When we understand that, it's like I'm, I get this more and more now, having been with my partner for um, I should know this, <laughs> twenty-six or twenty-seven years, something like that. And uh, but just those those moments of clarity where you know just brief moments <laughs> where there isn't this expectation that she is responsible for making me happy, nor is she responsible for making me unhappy. Like real clarity that actually who she is that dance that I call, you know, this person, my partner, doesn't really have anything to do with my happiness or unhappiness. It's like in those moments, the quality of appreciation and love and even, you know, on a really relative level, enjoyment is so much more powerful than when I deludedly you know with misperception think that she's there to make me happy or to torment me right which is you know those are the two camps we fall in all the time also with our meditation practice half of the time we think it's here to torment us other half of the time we think it's our savior we expect it to save us right and our teachers and the retreat center and the buddhist teachings and you know our bed and the food we eat we have these sort of dramatic expectations that it's like we think it's out to get us like oh my god oatmeal again or you know whatever they've got to be kidding <laughs> rice crackers <laughs> So I'd like to end, this is a really beautiful passage um, from one of our great uh, ancestors in our tradition, Achan Cha, a wonderful, wise Buddhist monk and Dharma teacher, um, passed away in 1992 in the Thai forest tradition. And this is uh, this talk you can find on the internet where he's been invited by one of his students to uh, speak to his mother who's dying. And this is what achacha says. And it's really about clarifying <coughs> these habits, I think, of these habits of misperceiving. Now grandma, set your heart on listening respectful, respectfully to the Dhamma, which is the teaching of the Buddha. While I am teaching you the Dhamma, be attentive as if the Buddha himself were sitting right in front of you. <clears throat> Remember, she's Thai, so she'd have a lot of condition, right? Her perception is the Buddha's great, right? Being born in that culture. Close your eyes and set your heart on making your mind one. Today I haven't brought you a gift of any substance aside from the Dhamma, the teachings of the Buddha. This is my last gift to you, so please accept it. You should understand that even the Buddha with all his virtues and perfections, couldn't avoid the weakening that comes with aging. When he reached the age you are, he let go. He let go of the fabrications of life. Letting go means that he put things, these things down. Don't carry them around. Don't weigh yourself down. Accept the truth about the fabrications of the body, whatever they may be. You've relied on them since you were born, but now it's enough. Now that they're old, they're like the utensils in your home, the cups, the saucers, and the plates that you've held on to all these years. When you first got them, they were bright and clean, but now they're wearing out. Some of them are broken, some of them are lost, while the ones remaining have all changed. They haven't stayed the same. That's just the way things are. The same holds true with the parts of your body. From the time of birth and on through your childhood and youth, they kept changing. Now they're called old, so accept the fact. The the Buddha taught that fabrications aren't us, they aren't ours. Whether they're inside the body or out, they keep changing in this way. Contemplate this until it's clear. You've been alive for a long time now, haven't you? Your eyes have had the chance to see all kinds of shapes, colors and lights. The same with your other senses. Your ears have heard lots of sounds, all kinds of sounds, but they were no big deal. You tasted really delicious foods, but they were no big deal. The beautiful things you've seen, they were no big deal. The ugly things you've seen, they were no big deal. The alluring things you heard were no big deal. The ugly and offensive things you've heard were no big deal. The Buddha taught, the Buddha thus taught that whether you are rich or poor, a child or an adult, either, even if you are an animal or anyone born in this world, there's nothing in this world that's lasting. Everything has to change in line with its condition. The truth of these conditions, if you try to fix them in a way that's not right, won't respond at all. But there is a way to fix things. The Buddha taught us to contemplate this body and mind to see that they aren't us, they aren't ours. They're just suppositions." And this is these are my words. Like we're training our mind, instead of they're just suppositions, it's just something being known, an activity of the mind being known. He goes on a little later, And this isn't just true for you. This is the way things are all over the world. Even the Buddha was this way. Even his enlightened disciples were this way. But they differed from us. In what way did they differ? They accepted this. They accepted the fact that the fabrications of the body are this way by their very nature. They can't be any other way. This is why the Buddha taught us to contemplate this body from the soles of the feet, uh, uh, from the soles of the feet on up to the top of the head, from the top of the head on down to the soles of the feet. These are the parts of the body. So look to see what all is there. Is there anything clean? Anything of substance? These things keep wearing down with time. The Buddha taught us to see that these fabrications aren't us. They aren't ours. They're just the way they are. What other way would you have them be? If you're suffering from this, then your thinking is wrong. When things are right but you see them wrong, It throws an obstacle across your heart. The Buddha looked at things in line with their conditions, that they simply have to be that way. So we let them go. We leave them be. Take your awareness as your refuge. So let's just take a few moments let go of the words you for listening. So we have walking practice now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.